Hi, everybody. I'm Michael Carice, welcoming you to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and health care. We're marking a couple of firsts on today's episode. In over 420 podcasts, we've never interviewed a goddess before, and we've never had a guest who has won 75 teaching awards. That is the happy situation we face today in welcoming Dr. Linda Costanzo to the show. Dr. Costanzo has been on the faculty of Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine for 43 years, where she is currently Professor Emerita of Physiology and Biophysics. She earned the nickname Physiology Goddess for her trio of books, including Costanzo Physiology 7th Edition, published by Elsevier, that have been translated into 13 languages, and altogether, there are more than one million of her books in print. In addition to her work in the classroom, she's held several administrative roles at VCU, including longtime course director of medical physiology, associate dean for preclinical medical education, and special assistant to the dean of medicine. And we're very happy to have you today. Thanks very much for coming. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. So we always like to start with learning more about our guests and what drove their career choices. Your PhD is in pharmacology. Mm-hmm. And you did postdoctoral work in physiology. So what drew you to those fields? Mm. Good luck, random chance. <laughs> I was a chemistry major in college, worked in um, a lab at the medical school. I was at Duke as an undergrad, and I got a summer job working for someone named Leon Lack, who happened to be a pharmacologist. I didn't know much, I didn't know much about pharmacology at that point, but he worked in the field of bile salts and intestinal transport of bile salts. In fact, he discovered that bile salts are recirculated in the ileum. So I didn't have much of a context for how important that was at the time. But he said, you know, the second summer I was there, what are you going to do with your life? And I knew I wasn't going to be a chemist at that point. And I said, oh, I think I'll just, maybe I'll stay at Duke and get a degree in biochemistry. And he said, as these great, like, old school mentors do. No, don't do that. (laughs) Go to Syracuse. I was down in Durham, North Carolina. Go to Syracuse and work with the smartest person I know. He's just become chair of pharmacology. Said, I'll buy you an airline ticket to go up and meet him. No kidding. Sort of this life-changing thing. I went up and decided to go there and work with this, at the time, the youngest chair of a medical school department of pharmacology in the country, just a real superstar. And he was really a physiologist. Ike, Ike Weiner was my mentor, and he he was a chair of pharmacology, but really his research was really kind of physiologic. And from there, I, doing renal physiology with him, knew I wanted to do single nephron this techniques in physiology, and that meant going for my postdoc to one of the one of the big labs, and I ended up at Cornell that was doing single nephron work and learning those techniques. And that happened to be a department of physiology. And so I just stayed in physiology. So it's kind of a, just an ordinary story in a way, serendipity, an amazing mentor who did sort of a life-changing airline ticket, you know. Why do you think he knew that that would be a good fit for you? Oh, I don't know if he, I don't know. Good question. (laughs) I should have asked him while I could. I, I did write back and thank him. Yeah. Well, we hear so much in these interviews about the importance of mentors Mm -hmm. and then sort of paying it back. Have you done that in your career? I That's such a great question. And I think about that a lot. I was one of the luckiest 
people, when I said luck, I really meant it because I was one of the luckiest people in terms of my mentors. I mean, Leon Lack was one kind of mentor at a very early stage, primitive stage for me. Ike Weiner was brilliant graduate advisor. As a graduate student, I had to wait in line to get into his office. Wow. Because everyone in the medical school wanted a piece of his time to talk about their projects. He actually became dean of that medical school and then dean of another medical school. And then I went to Cornell and worked with Eric Windhager, who was a totally different kind of mentor, much sterner. And <laughs> But underneath that sternness was a very, very kind person. So I had three great mentors who I, you know, if I can emulate, you know, for your, you know, answering your question, I think that kind of sets the stage for kind of modeling the, the mentor that I hoped I could become. And it's a big part of my work is just working with students one-on-one. -on -one. Yeah, right. You're certainly in a position to do that. So you find yourself in a research lab and at some point down the road, you have to make a choice about mm -hmm. getting into medical education at VCU. So, and you describe that in an essay called Am I Bored Yet?, which is a great title. You have, sort of have to read that. So take us through that decision and, and why you ended up making the choice you did. Yeah, yeah. So after the postdoc at, in New York, five years, and I was married and had two kids at that point. And my husband is also an academic, so we were looking for two jobs at one, in one place, and preferably a medical school. So we got to the two positions at VCU in Richmond. And, you know, I was a full-time researcher you know, doing single nephron work. Everybody who did research taught at some level. That was the culture. And that was the way it was in 1979, 80, when I started there. And I started with graduate students and then medical students. And, you know, one thing led to another. And I really, I love the teaching and I love the balance that it brought to my professional life because the lab is a pretty, can be a pretty isolating place. Sure. The results are long, long, long term and lots and lots of failures. And, and, you know, that's the research life, which I loved also. But teaching brought that, you know, that immediate, that proximity to students, the one-on-one -on -one, and the opportunity presented itself to move into a leadership role. I was already kind of running the medical physiology course and Dean asked me to take this big job. And I thought, oh, what, you know, what to do and got advice. And, but in the end, you know, it's the decision you only can make for yourself because it would mean living, leaving research. That's not a, a door that would reopen. So it wasn't really a default kind of thing, which, but rather really kind of an active decision that I, you know, said, I'm, I got to own this decision if I make, if I make the choice. So I decided to take the, the Dean Lee job and I got a lot of cheerleaders you know, among my colleagues, but there was this one person in the department, kind of the department naysayer, you know, that every group has somebody that's grousing around. And he's like, took me aside and said, I want to tell you something. Everybody that teaches eventually gets bored. Like, oh dear, I've just taken this job. And, <laughs> and you're like, what did I do? Oh, another life changing. Yeah. What have I done? So the story, you know, I tell the story about then starting to observe all the faculty in the in the preclinical medical education, trying to learn everything I could about everybody. And I sat sitting in on his lecture, this, this naysayer's lecture the next day after hearing this. And, you know, it was a pretty grim, you know, he, he was a board, he was a board teacher who had gone way too long. So this, that's where the story pick, kind of picks up and sort of 
decided that, you know, as much as I wanted to dismiss him and his naysaying, I just couldn't put it out of my mind. And I kind of saw his example and I said, oh my gosh, what if, is this going to be me? So I started these boredom checks. Check in. Are you bored yet? That's the title. <laughs> and I, you know, so initially I set up really easy tests and it's like low, low hanging fruit kind of thing. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Not bored yet. Not bored yet. And tell a few stories about different scenarios. And then I sort of recognized that, oh, you are making this way too easy on yourself and you need to go <laughs> dig deeper. And and where I dug was in areas where I just felt very comfortable. You know, I was like, oh, this is, teaching has become very comfortable now. It used to be very hard and I used to worry about it, but now I'm not so worried about teaching some of these topics. And when I dug there, that's where I found it. I said, oh, the, you know, comfort, you, uh, you know, that's where complacency, you know, can lives also. And complacency is like, you know, that's the next step, you know, right before you know, you start thinking, oh, good enough, good enough, uh, that'll do. And there were certain topics that it wasn't everything, of course, it was just a few things where I was like, eh, it's such a dry topic, I'll, it's good enough. So I decided if I was going to have a long career in medical education, which it looked like I was going to, I better do something about this. And I sort of concocted as a scheme. I was like, that was just for me, just to to get that edge back, that fear of falling short, I would call it, you know, where I would challenge myself in ways that I had nothing to do with anything I did, you know, directly in the classroom. I would just did it to keep it, to keep myself really humble. Like you got, you know, take this really hard case, see if you can dissect it and figure it out. And so that was kind of the story. You sort of created some discomfort for yourself, I think. Is the, yeah, to create the discomfort, it. which had been there in, you know, in the early years. And, and I just, I suspect that any career, you know, especially a long career, you know, this is a, you know, something that we're all kind of potentially susceptible to is just be where we, that point where comfort becomes complacency and even boredom. And then you're not bringing the joy to the students that, you know, is so part of your whole teaching philosophy. Hmm. Well, on that for a second, because I do want to ask you about additional essays, but, you know, you, you really seem to have a knack for teaching. I was reading about, well, some of the examples you were giving, you, you seem to be creative. You really seem to connect with the students. Where did all of that come from? Is that, was that just kind of a, a, a gift or how did you learn how to teach? You know, it wasn't from teaching workshops at the beginning. You know, I was like, but you have their place and they're handy, you know, the, you know, little technique oriented kind of things. I mean, this is, I think from, seeing my mentors and going back to that other examples and there wouldn't they would not be the kind of examples you would necessarily you know pick up on or talk about but you know when i they kinds of things i've always remembered i remember a faculty member when i was back in graduate school we come in for the it was actually a pharmacology a medical school pharmacology class and we come in and we find out that he had been called in the middle of the night to pinch hit. I actually remember the topic he was teaching, was opioids, pain medications. He had been called in the middle of the night to pinch it for someone who had become ill, who was supposed to come in and guest lecture. And he got up at two o'clock in the morning. We learned, we learned, you know, the students learned these things and came in and gave the most brilliant lecture. That kind of memory, you know, that it just, whatever, we, you know, it's so connected with me and it sort of sets the whole philosophy of our, I don't know, that obligation to the students, 
the obligation to excellence, the no whining, I don't know, a whole <laughs> bunch of things that are, you know. So you asked the question, and that's what I thought of. So I understand you're going to write some more essays about medical education. Can you give us a preview of some of the topics you'll be covering? And, and what inspired you to start writing these sorts of things? Yeah, yeah. So the I've actually published a few. This is the board is the fourth one. And then I have some others that are cooking, you know, in various stages. And uh, really, it has to do, it kind of goes back to something we were talking about a bit, a bit earlier, you know, that developing that next cohort of new teachers. And I see the need. People like me are, you know, are not going to, you know, we're not going to be around forever. And to really encourage and excite young, young faculty who wish to teach, have that love of the connection with the students to really support them in what is going to be, I mean, their personal journey, but it's going to be a long process. It, it is a long process to really develop into a the great teacher that they aspire to be. And I thought, you know, doing something in writing is such a, it's so, you know, it's accessible at any time and to write, these are personal essays. So they really take kind of a little vignette, a little, you know, a single memory, let's say, and, you know, really discuss kind of the between the lines, I think, aspects of of medical school teaching, not the formulaic workshop, here's how you do it, but the the kind of things that we all encounter in our personal <laughs> journeys and common points of crisis, I sometimes think about, you know, where you're teaching, you might give it up. I decided to start and I wrote, the first one is This Will Never Do. That was published in the American Physiological Society Education Journal. And that is a a profile of Eric Windhager, who was my mentor at Cornell, who asked me to teach the medical students. It was the first lecture I ever gave. And it's about the rehearsal that he demanded. I told you he was demanding. <laughs> it was just me and me and him. I think that's correct. In the big lecture hall, me at the podium with this lecture I had prepared and him on the back row. And he held his head in his hands for two hours. <laughs> and I, didn't, I just kept going. And at the end of the two hours, he yelled from the back, will never do. This will never do. Wow. Yes. Wow. That must have been a tough moment. It was, well, it was. Uh, and then he said, tomorrow. So he, that meant you have to. You have to man, of, man of few words. Yeah. <laughs> redo the whole words. thing. Yeah. You'll be. We'll do this again tomorrow is what that meant. And it better be good enough for my medical students was the message. So that's the first essay I published. And that's just about. That first teaching attempt, I told the story at various in various venues and stuff, and my colleagues are all like, "And you, you taught again after that? You know, yeah, right. you, taught, you, know you just <laughs> give it up." I wrote another one, "Acid Base and Me," that was public in Medi published in Medical Teacher about learning to teach a topic that you don't understand, or no, that you don't fully understand, or that you're afraid of, and that's what that's about. Common points of crisis, and then another one about new faculty development and faculty development workshops and getting asked to do that and not wanting to do it the way they wanted me to do it, you know. So, and then I have some other ones cooking. So that's, it's really about that of supporting others, whether they're sometimes medical students even who want, you know, think that they would love to have teaching as part of their careers. I absolutely love to hear that. That's wonderful. You know, I've mentioned that you've won 75 teaching awards, which seems I've never heard a number that high before. <laughs> so I guess the question is, you know, what is it that you think you do well? What what are your strengths? 
as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And is and are those the strengths that are being picked out in the awards, or are they missing the boat? Yeah, I don't know. The awards, are, it's sort of a, the, you know, you got to think of the time period. So it's a long time period, and then maybe the number is, yeah, it's it's wonderful, and I've been really lucky. I mean, I think, yeah, I think they, I think so, because I think students who are, you know, they are evaluators, ultimately, they're the ones that say what's working for them. And I pay attention to that. And there's something, I guess there's something in my style that just clicks in that way. I'm very organized. I mean, I'm just like probably obsessively organized and that helps because nothing, I don't leave, I don't like to leave a lot to chance in terms of the overall plan for any teaching exercise. And that allows me then to be kind of spontaneous as well, but not too spontaneous because I know what the overall structure is. I know what the goals are. And, you know, and I think that works well with most students. Most students, you know, like to see something that's clear, have, you know, something that's clear. And then that just, it really is so much about the personal connection with students and just enjoying that, welcoming more of it, and it didn't, I mean, of course, none of this happened overnight. It was a long process to get to that, to that point. But, you know, it's sort of like coming in every day, being the best you can possibly be for that group of students, because it's not about last year's students or how successful you were, but it's the people in front of you who, you know, deserve the best. I was driving into work, this was maybe a month ago, and I was going to be giving the last review of the M2 students renal course and they were going to have the exam you know the next day or something two days and I had NPR on and Bonnie North she's wonderful she has a wonderful voice and she always says in her programs I'm going to paraphrase it uh, delighted to have your company today you know and I thought oh I'll have to share that with the students today because I felt that's how I you know sort of feeling about them they came in for this review they have a big exam coming in a very difficult subject matter. And it's sort of like that company idea. Yeah, I like, I like her choice of words, you know, to sort of do this together. So, I mean, I think that's really it. It kind of, that philosophy of welcoming all students, regardless of their, where they are in their trajectory, how, whether they're, you know, gifted in the sciences or whether they're always striving to keep up with the sciences, but love, you know, people and that the people part of medicine, whether they have a long trajectory in terms of their success. I mean, that sort of inclusiveness, I think, is a big part of it, too. Mm. So I imagine there's people listening that are finding this very valuable because they aspire to teach one day. And there also may be people listening who aspire to write a textbook. Mm -hmm. Someday. So I do want to get you to talk about that. How do you even approach something as complicated as that? And, and what are the biggest challenges in writing, you know, a didactic style book? Well, I, you know, I decided and the, the textbook is the physiology textbook is published with Elsevier. And I actually chose Elsevier because of the long tradition of didactic textbooks that they have. Like I went, I thought, I wanted to be in that company. That was really the reason. And I was like... Yeah, and for the benefit of our audience, you're talking about Gray's yeah, Anatomy, Robbins, right? And Robbins. Physiology. I had the great honor to meet Arthur Guyton a couple of times. And he's a legend in physiology. Cecil's Medicine. I, I should have said the names. And I read the history of W.B. W. Saunders 
before I made my decision. That was a, actually a great book. I don't know if you, 100 year history. Um, yeah, 100 year anniversary. Oh, yeah. Wow. Anyway, they tell all the stories of how these books came to be. And, you know, that's what I wanted to do was to write a didactic textbook for physiology because I saw that there was a need for that and students were craving that. I had previously published the BRS review book and students were using that as a textbook, which they shouldn't have been doing. I mean, it's fine as an, it's fine <laughs> as an adjunct, you know, to their classes for a review, but uh, not for primary learning. I didn't think, and I was, and so I said, oh, there's a need for this. So, you know, it's really the philosophy, you know, is it is written to students and for students. It's not written to impress my colleagues with any, you know, research level physiology, physiologic knowledge. Uh, I think the tension, it just to answer your question, is between keeping that accessibility for students, because that that is who it's for and being and still maintaining the integrity of the science and riding that line so i think that probably is the greatest challenge and then the other i think is just maintaining my philosophy and voice which is to make it as accessible as possible to make it as fun as possible fun is a big part of the you know the whole teaching philosophy but it's also not a word that people associate with textbooks <laughs> No, probably not. <laughs> yeah, but it should be. And and I'm actually working on the next, going to be starting the next edition, and I'm going to even make it more fun because I just decided, why not? I think it's fun already, but it could, you know, physiology, I mean, it's really the best subject. How does everything work? That's basically, the, yeah. you know, in the body. And so, but keeping that voice, but also having my ear to the ground for feedback and what's working, what's not working in terms of student users and sort of kind of that that balance and tension as well and so this would be the eighth edition you're working on yeah so that's that's pretty uncommon so what do you attribute the success of the book to and are you surprised i mean you're as i said at a million copies in print of all of your books that's an amazing achievement i i would have never I had no idea i had no idea not really except that i I was pretty sure there was a need for a book like this, but whether I could be successful, I, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't imagine it. It feels like it, it's somebody else, but I just don't have that, that image of myself. So anyway, I think why it's lasted, I'm gathering, because this is what I hear, is that physiology is so difficult and it is, you know, at, at the level that medical students need to know physiology, it is so complex and there are difficult concepts and they need as much help as possible in making those connections and the stepwise kind of thinking. And that's the same thing I do. It's really what I do with my teaching is kind of this stepwise thinking approach. And so I just brought that to a textbook. The challenge for me was to learn all the areas of physiology that I didn't know at that level yet. I had to teach myself. Goodness. And as I taught myself, I sort of saw how I could, you know, teach others. I had a, certainly had the background to figure it out, but I mean, I had to, I had to really tackle everything, kind of almost everything that way. My goodness, what a ton of work! <laughs> so we're we only have a, a couple minutes left. We always like to have our guests provide some advice to the students and early career professionals in our audience about how to approach their careers. You're around students all the time. What's your go-to advice? Mm -hmm. Well, I think about my own students because that, you know, 
they're, they're my group, my people, those are the people I know the best. And I have, I, whenever I have the chance, I always encourage them to, to stay curious, to not be afraid to be fascinated by what they're learning. And because I see, you know, the grueling preclinical medical education, it is, a, you know, it's a slog. And then there's step one, the reality of step one, and that incredible focus on all that, on surviving it and on passing step one. But what I would say, you know, say to them when I have a chance is that is going to be behind you in the rearview mirror before you know it. And what everything else lies ahead. And that's going to be up to you, to your own drive and curiosity to keep learning. So that is my true advice. Yeah. And there's no shortage of things to learn in, in healthcare because it's changing every single day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Costanzo, this has really been um, a lot of fun. I can say that. Podcast should be fun too <laughs> and super interesting. And we uh, really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Have a wonderful day. You too. I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen the healthcare system. We're all in this together. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.